You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Clint Wright. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday's service now. Now let's open up God's Word. We're going to be in 2 Thessalonians today. We've got just a couple more weeks in uh, the last Thessalonian letter. Uh, and this sermon, I want to warn you, this sermon's going to be a little bit different, okay? It's different for a few reasons. Number one, this is a hard, difficult passage, okay? I read a commentator, uh, a guy named Leon Morris said, this passage is probably the most obscure and difficult of all of Paul's writings. That's pretty high bar sometimes. Uh, it's going to be different because, y'all, there's a lot of disagreement about this passage. And not just disagreement like out there in the world, at Bethel. So there's disagreement between members, between leaders, even between pastors, which means I'm going to have to say the three words more than once that a lot of people tell you a preacher should never say. I don't know. I'm just going to have to say it. I'm sorry. I wish I knew, but I don't. And that means some of you are going to leave frustrated. You're going to leave disappointed because I didn't tell you who the Antichrist is. I know you want to know. I've got some options. Maybe if I see you falling asleep, I might name you. You better be careful. <laughs> You're going to say you didn't have the chart, the chart that showed me the future. You didn't, you didn't tell my in-laws that they were wrong, Clint. Why didn't you tell my in-laws they were wrong? I'm sorry. I'm not, so now you know up front, I'm not going to be able to do that. I've got a picture I want to show you. This, I think, illustrates what sometimes New Testament prophecy is like. Now, you're not having a stroke your eyes haven't gone bad. Okay, that is a blurry picture, right? Now, there's some things you can tell about this picture. Some of you who know us can probably tell that's my family. Or at least you could tell there's four people there, two big ones and two little ones. You can probably tell it's outside. But there's a lot more about that picture that you can't make out, right? You can't tell what's that in the background. Is that a tree? Are there some buildings? Are there other people in the background? You can't tell what color are our eyes. You can't tell what the expressions on our, our faces are. It's too blurry for all of that. This is what New Testament prophecy is intentionally like. So we, you know, the New Testament talks about eschatology, talks about future end times, the coming of Christ, and it gives us a frustrating, blurry picture. But you see, that's on purpose because it tells us some information. There are some things we need to know, but it often leaves out some of the finite details. And what we're terrible about, what Christians are terrible about is getting angry and prideful and splitting churches over the blurry details that none of us can see anyway. What we do when we do that, sometimes, y'all, we get so lost in arguing over the blurry details that we neglect the part we can see. We neglect the part we can understand. We forget that there is a big picture that God actually wants us to get out of this passage. So, we forget. We forget that there, we have enough to know. We don't know all the details, but we have enough to know that we can have hope. And this is largely what Paul's, both of Paul's letters to the Thessalonians have been about. He, he's given the church a blurry picture of the second coming of Christ. And it's not enough to know everything, but it's enough to give them hope in hard times. That's been our theme throughout these two books. 
But what we know what's happening in 2 Thessalonians is other people are coming in and they're trying to say, oh, oh, but I've got the super secret spiritual knowledge. I actually have the clear picture. I know all the details. And just follow me and I'll tell you all, all the details. And that is wreaking havoc in the church. These false teachers are causing bad theology. They're causing idleness and they're stirring up fear in the church. So here in chapter two, Paul steps in and says, no, we're not doing this. He says, you don't know everything, but you know enough to have hope. And that's our big idea today. You know enough to have hope. Let's start reading. Second Thessalonians verse one. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our time being gathered together in him, we ask you brothers not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So this gives us a little bit of the setting. What's going on? The Thessalonians are all a flutter. I mean, they're worried. They're, they're scared. What are they worried about? Well, he says they're worried about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered. Now, most people agree what he's talking about is what we call the rapture. Where do we get that from? A lot of places in the Bible, but mainly the closest context. First Thessalonians, he talks about, and he uses the same wording of the coming of the Lord and our being gathered. And it's the Jesus will descend, the loud trumpet, the dead in the Christ will rise, and those who are living will meet the Lord in the air. And he uses that same phrase, this is the coming of the Lord. Now today, a lot of people agree about this, but they even argue about timing and order of events. And so uh, some people think that this this rapture will happen a few years before the Lord's final return. And so we call that a pre-tribulation rapture or a mid-tribulation rapture. And we'll talk about this idea of a tribulation here in a second. Some people say, yes, there's going to be this rapture, but it's going to happen at the same time as the Lord's final return. We call that post-tribulation, or there's another view called amillennialism, okay? But let's talk about context. In Thessalonica, what's going on? It seems... The expectation of the Thessalonians was that this rapture will happen a few years before Christ's final return. See, what ha what's happening is the church, it's going through some very hard times. And y'all, I don't want to downplay it. These are very real, very difficult times for them, okay? And in those hard times, people are, are turning to all kind of speculation about the rapture about the tribulation. And so, man, they, they can't get off Facebook. They're doing their internet research. They're watching all the TV pre preachers learn, trying to learn about this rapture, okay? And they had become convinced wrongly that they had missed the rapture. They had missed the coming of the Lord because they thought that today where they were living right then and there was this tribulation, was these hard times. And so they're saying, uh-oh, if this is the tribulation, we must have fallen asleep when that trumpet played. Somehow we missed the rapture. That's what seems to be going on. Now, let's talk about what Paul calls here the day of the Lord. So that rapture is the coming of the Lord. That's what they're all worried that they missed. And Paul said, no, you didn't miss it because today is not the day of the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord, it's not a single day. It's a time period. And it's actually a time period that shows up throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament. The scriptures speak about it over and over again. And it is a time unlike anything else that has ever happened in history. It's kind of like the final, last gasp of evil. When all the injustice, all the, all the evil, all the sin, all the rebellion that's common today gets turned up to an uncommon degree. And so it's, it's kind of the height, 
of human rebellion against God. Now, almost every view of eschatology agrees about the day of the Lord because there's so much scriptural evidence, even though they're going to argue about order of events, where it falls in the order of events. But almost everyone acknowledges there will be some kind of final great rebellion of humanity against God. But we call it the day of the Lord, not the day of rebellion, because after that final great rebellion will come the final great judgment and the return of Jesus. Okay, so let's talk about, again, the context. Where, where are we getting this from? This is why it's great that we have two letters to Thessalonica. In 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul talks about this day of the Lord. And you may remember, he said it'll come like a thief in the night. It'll be sudden. It'll be unexpected. He said it'll be like childbirth, like the pains of labor. So you won't know when it's coming, but when it starts, there's no escaping it, and it will be painful. But Paul also said, he also said this thing, because it sounds like scary and spooky, but here's, he also said that for the Christian, the day of the Lord is not a source of fear. It's not something to be afraid of. He said, because God does not, he has not destined us for wrath. He has destined us for salvation. So for the Christian, this day of the Lord is a source of hope. And so he even tells us, encourage one another with these words. Encourage one another with this talk of the day of the Lord. He's saying, with the day of the Lord, you know enough to have hope. But here, in 2 Thessalonians 2, they're not encouraged, are they? They're afraid because they thought they were in the day of the Lord. They thought they had missed the rapture and the coming of the Lord. Slept through the trumpet. Whoops, what are we going to do now? So that's the situation. That's what Paul is writing into. I want you to notice something in verse 2. So what's, what's the first thing he addressed? Paul starts off pastorally. He starts off addressing their hearts. And so he, he, his main objective isn't to address all the gory details of the future. He's addressing their hopelessness. That's where he starts. And so he says, I don't want you to be shaken in mind. This word shaken, it, it, it's, it means like tossed around like the waves of a sea. It's kind of this restless tossing. And he says, in your mind. So, y'all, it's not like, he's not just talking logic. It's not like they had forgotten how to solve two plus two. He's talking about literally your mental well-being, your mental wellness. And the way he says it in the original language, the, the tense of the verb, it's like a, a sudden shock. And so it's like someone hits them with some sudden information and, and it makes them become like a storm-tossed sea. Paul's saying these these false teachers, they are creating white caps in people's minds. And he says, don't be alarmed. And what, what you can see in the original language is he changes the tense of the verb. And so it's not a sudden shock. Instead of it's this continuing state of agitation. It's not a sudden jolt, but an ongoing, relentless anxiety. And so Paul is saying, here's what these false teachers are doing. They are shaking people up. And then they're just leaving them that way. And many of you know exactly what Paul is talking about, don't you? Didn't Jesus say this? Didn't he say you can judge a tree by its fruit? Didn't he warn us to test the spirits of what people would teach us and the information that they would give us? Paul said the words of truth, he says this to the Thessalonians, the words of truth 
will produce encouragement and hope. But the fruit of false teaching is white caps in your mind and hopelessness in your hearts. Listen, I encourage you. Last week, y'all, Todd Wright came and preached and gave a phenomenal sermon. He did a great job warning us about our fear-based information cycle, even in and sometimes especially in Christian media. And so if you weren't here this last week, I encourage you, go listen. Todd did a phenomenal job. I just want to echo some of that. Christians today, you have to be aware of our fear industrial complex, okay? In our culture, targeted directly at Christians, there are lots of people who know how to use the right buzzwords to stir people up, to create white caps. And it has always been true, men and women, it has always been true of human nature. The easiest way to get someone to do what you want them to do is to use fear. And so, man, so many people know this. They are great at it. In our culture, attention is money. And people know the best way to keep your eyeballs on them is to stir you up, is to create white caps in your mind and hopelessness and anxiety in your hearts. And that's not new. That's exactly what's going on in Thessalonica. These false teachers are doing the same things. And we need to understand fear was dangerous then and it's dangerous now. See, fear will do two things. Number one, it'll cause us to lose perspective. This is where the Thessalonians are getting way off track. It's because they thought the difficulty that they were going through was the day of the Lord. But their current sufferings, although they were real, although they were difficult, were not the day of the Lord. And most likely, ours are not either. See, so it's so easy to think, and people can give us this message, and it makes sense that this is the worst it's ever been. Well, listen, men and women, just because it's the worst it's ever been for you doesn't mean it's the worst it's ever been in history. We have to know this. Listen, the day of the Lord, it is not the interruption of your agenda. It's not even the downfall of a country or the shift of a culture. It's not the removal of our comfort. It's not the current news cycle. So we say, okay, well, what is it? What is the day of the Lord? More on that later. But for now, just know, whatever it is, whenever it is, it is bigger than you. It is bigger than just me and my circumstances. But fear will cause me to lose that perspective. The other thing fear does, fear is contagious. It is spread throughout the whole church. I always think about in the Old Testament, you know, we just studied the book of Joshua. Twelve spies go out to spy out the land. Two come back with faith in the Lord. Ten come back with fear of giants. Which option spread throughout the people? The fear. It will spread like wildfire. So Paul says, listen, take notice of what this, what this teaching is doing inside of you. Is it producing hope or is it producing fear? Let's keep reading. Verse 3. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things. I love verse 5. 
Because first off, Paul says something that every parent says about twice a day. Do you not remember what I just told you? And apparently, they didn't. And this is the part, guys, this is the part that makes the picture really blurry for us because apparently we are getting in on the middle of a conversation. Have you ever done that? You walk up on a couple people talking and they say something and it just sounds crazy. You're like, what is happening? And then they got to go back and rehash. No, 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 they said this. And so I said it, and then it makes sense. But y'all, we can't go back and rehash the conversation with them. We have some of what Paul told them in the book of 1 Thessalonians, but there's a whole lot of other stuff, y'all, that he just taught them in person or may have come in a different letter that we don't have right now. And so this is why, this is why we stay humble and we don't break fellowship over eschatology. We want to be as accurate as we can, but there's some areas that we cannot be dogmatic. We want to be humble enough to know we're looking at a blurry picture. There's some things that Paul told them that we simply don't have, and we are getting in on the middle of a conversation. There's another reason. There's another reason in the text to be humble. He says, do not be deceived. Y'all, Paul's such a parent here. Do you know why I often say in my house, do not yell in the house? Because my kids are prone to yelling in the house. That's why I have to say it. Do you know why Paul says, do not be deceived? Because we are prone to being deceived. It's a real warning. We can never forget. We can never forget this. We have an enemy, Satan. What's he called? The father of lies, the deceiver. He's used that same tactic all the way back to the Garden of Eden in Thessalonica and even today. And he's never had to change tactics. You know why? Because it keeps working. That's what Paul, this is why we get as part, part of the picture. He does give us something to see because even a blurry picture can help you not be deceived. So let's talk about the part of the picture we can see, the part of the picture he gives us. We get three prerequisites for the day of the Lord. He could say, you can know you're not in the day of the Lord right now and you didn't miss the coming of the Lord because three things have to happen first that haven't happened yet. Number one, the rebellion. This word rebellion, it means apostasy. It means uprising, revolt, mutiny. And so by definition, this isn't a bunch of people who Never heard the name of Jesus, never darkened the door of a, a church. No, no, no. It's a civil war against an authority that you used to submit to. It is treason. It is a whole earth full of Judases. It's what he's describing here. And notice the definite article. It's not a rebellion. It is the rebellion. That's what makes us think it's not... It's not something that's just always ongoing all, all the time. It's a specific event. It is a concentration of rebellion that saturates the earth like has never happened in history. So that's number one. Number two, the man of lawlessness, a.k.a. he calls him the, the son of destruction. Now, almost all uh, commentators agree that what Paul has in mind here is what we would call the Antichrist. First John chapter 2 calls him the Antichrist. You'll see this figure in Daniel 9. You'll see him in Revelation where he's part of the unholy trinity. And here Paul tells us this man of lawlessness will do three things. And each of these three things is a progressive step farther and farther into blasphemy. 
So what's he going to do? Number one, he's going to oppose and exalt himself against every God. Did you notice that? Not just one God, not just a true God, every other God, every form of worship he is going to oppose. He will not let anything else be worshiped. And then number two, he's going to take his seat in the temple. Now, y'all, I could talk for this about an hour. This is fascinating to me. Because it's not maybe what we picture. You'd probably picture, you know, a big old guy in a robe and a crown sitting on some huge ornate throne like the king of England. The problem is, in the temple, there is no throne. There's not a throne like that to sit on in the temple. What do we have in the temple? Where, in the temple, where the presence of God is, is a place called the Holy of Holies. And what's in there? Well, you got the Ark of the Covenant. Inside the Ark of the Covenant is God's law. It's the Ten Commandments. And then on top of the ark is something we call the judgment seat, guarded by cherubim. And that's uh, where God is said to have dwelt, where his presence is. And that is the place where atonement was made. Once a year on the day of atonement, the priest would come in and sprinkle the blood of an innocent lamb on that judgment seat to atone for our sins because we couldn't keep the law that was in the ark. You see the picture there? And that is an exact picture, an exact clear illustration of what Jesus does. Christ, the Lamb of the God, shed his blood and his innocent blood is sprinkled on the judgment seat to make atonement for our sins. And that is how, in the, that is the only way we can enter God's presence. The only way into God's presence is that God said, I'm going to die for you so you can have a relationship with me. So what does it mean for the Antichrist to take a seat there. I think it means two things. Number one, he is putting himself above the words of God, above the law of God. He's saying, I'll make the, judge, the judgments. I don't care what God said in his word. Number two, he is reversing the work of Christ. He is replacing the blood. And when he does that, he is in essence saying, hey, instead of me dying for you, it is time for you to die for me. Which leads to the third thing. He proclaims himself to be God. We see this in Revelation. We see this figure demanding worship. And now it is complete, total, pure blasphemy. He has replaced God in every way. Now, I want us to notice something here. I want us to notice the progression of evil. There's always a progression to it. There's even a progression... For our own sin. I mean, Psalm 1 says this when, when it comes to sin. Hey, first you're just walking through it, then you're standing in it, and then you've taken a seat right down in it. I once heard it said about sin, sin will always take you farther than you ever wanted to go and keep you there longer than you ever intended to stay. So be careful, men and women. Be careful for the excuses you make for evil in you and evil out there. Paul's trying to warn us, listen, guys, the clouds were circling long before it started to rain. Let's keep reading, verse 6. And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. Okay, so remember, there's three things that have to happen before the day of the Lord, okay? Number one, the rebellion. Number two, the man of lawlessness. And here we get number three. Restraint is removed. Restraint 
is removed. You know, it's very interesting. Both here and in 1 John, they both kind of talk about this Antichrist, this man of lawlessness, in the same way. And so John will say, even right now, there's little Antichrist all around us, always operating, until the day comes that there's the capital A Antichrist. Here he says, look, even today, right now, at all times, there's this mystery of lawlessness operating until it reaches its culmination in the man of lawlessness that is coming later. And so all these things are already at work, but at one time restraint will be removed and, in, and through one person they'll culminate. And so it's almost like this. It's almost like in all times, in all places in this world, all the ingredients are there. They're all there, but something's keeping them from coming together. But one day restraint will be removed and all those ingredients will come together in this recipe to make like the world's worst casserole ever, Okay. So who or what is the restraint? Okay, better question is, who and what is the restraint? Because what we get here is both a who and a what. There's a something and a someone. There is a restrainer and restraint. Okay, guys, this is the biggest I don't know of the whole passage. I don't know, and nobody else really knows who and what the restrainer is. There's probably around nine orthodox opinions. And so, hey, have that. If you want to figure out, you can go. There are millions of pages written across all of church history. And the good ones will say, here's what I think, but I don't really know. Okay? So, I, sorry, I don't know. Some people think it's Paul is the restrainer. His message is the restraint. Some people think it's the emperor and government. Some people think it's government in general. Some people say it's different members of the Trinity. I'll tell you what my preferred view is, but I'm not willing to die on this hill. I think the restraint is the church and the restrainer is the Holy Spirit. So while the church is present and his Holy Spirit indwells us, we are a restraint on evil in this world. And I would ask, what better restraint could there be? And I want you to know, every person in here, Every believer a part of this church. That means you are a part of this. That's why the church is so much more than a club or a social organization. This is why the church has to be more in your life than just an extracurricular activity, even if it's the most important extracurricular activity. Jesus said the church has the keys to the kingdom. What happens here has eternal, everlasting consequences. And so you know what? Y'all, I think sometimes it is good and right and healthy for us to be sober about the importance of what we do here. The church is a profound thing. So next, next Paul tells us, okay, here, here's the blurry picture. You can see some things, some things you can't. Let me tell you how this blurry picture is going to be made clear. Verse 8, and then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. So verse 8, he tells us, hey, listen, there's only one way this picture will be brought into focus. And it's not going to be because you figure it out. 
You're not, it's not because you're going to be smarter than everyone else and write a book and become a celebrity preacher. No, no, no. He says the lawless one will be revealed. See, prophecy only becomes clear when God chooses to reveal it. So that means this, that even if the man of lawlessness is alive today, you haven't figured it out. And you won't until God chooses to reveal it. Think about, think about Jesus, right? This is how it worked with him. All kind of prophecies we have about Jesus, they make perfect sense now. But y'all, for 30 years, Jesus walked the earth and nobody guessed that he was the Messiah. We're even told that Mary, his own mom, struggled to understand what was going on here. Until, until at a wedding, he decided to turn water into wine. Until he walked into a synagogue and he opened the scroll of Isaiah and he read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and proclaim the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll and he said, Today that has been fulfilled in your presence. The Gospel of Mark, over and over again, it uses the same word. It says, when Jesus would teach, when he would do things, the people would marvel at him. Why are they marveling? Y'all, they knew the prophecies. They knew the Old Testament scriptures, and they believed in them. They expected it to happen. They were looking for it to happen. But then once God revealed his actual plan, they marveled. They marveled because it was finally making sense, I think, but also because it was more wonderful than they could have ever even imagined. You know, Paul uses that same word here in 2 Thessalonians in, in chapter 1, verse 10. He says, when Jesus comes again, all who believe will marvel at him. Well, if we believe in him, if we expect it to happen, why are we marveling? Because only then does this beautiful picture come into focus and it's more beautiful than we could have ever imagined. You know, one of the easiest ways to get into bad theology is being way too certain about the things you have no business being so certain about. And the past few decades, let's be honest, the past few decades in our culture have been rife with examples. They all, they all just, just seem foolish. One of my favorites is a guy named Ronald Wineland. And y'all, he gave us the exact day. He gave us the exact day Jesus is coming back and he had to do it three times because the day kept coming and going. September 29th, 2011, that's the day. Put it on your calendar. Came and went. Then May 27th, 2012, came and went. Undeterred, he continued on. May 18th, 2013, they came and went. And then he got locked up for tax, tax fraud, so put an end to that. See, Paul, I wish he did. He doesn't give us a clear picture here. But he gives us some characteristics, okay? He said that this man of lawlessness, he's going to be powered by Satan. And you think, before you just say, you know, I, I'd never follow someone powered by Satan. Look at the second thing. He'll be full of false signs and wonders. Y'all, he will be very impressive. We will, our jaw will be on the floor at some of the things he can do. And then thirdly, he will deceive. He will trick people into believing the truth is a lie and that pleasure is in unrighteousness. And a lot of people will buy it. But then there's one more 
characteristic he gives us in this blurry picture. And y'all, it's the most important one. This man, as bad as he is, as, as deceiving as he can be, he is under God's control. He says God is in complete control of the timing, and he says God will destroy him in his own time. Y'all, I love verse 8. I love that line. The Lord Jesus will kill him with the breath of his mouth and bring him to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Wow. Notice, and notice this. It's the same verse that announces his arrival. So the announcement of this being revealed is immediately followed by the announcement of his destruction. See, Paul's goal, he's not, again, he's not trying to give us all the gory details or, or you know, tickle our curiosity about this person. We get no details about him after he arrives other than Jesus destroys him effortlessly. Think about, think about the enormous amount of lives and time and energy and money and resources that we put into trying to restrain evil. I mean, all of our government, all of our laws, all of our police forces, all of our armies, our, our education, our government, and we still have a really hard time keeping it at bay, don't we? But for Jesus, when he arrives, it will be as effortless as appearing and breathing. See, I think a lot of times we have this kind of narrative in the church that, you know, there's this battle for good and evil that's kind of this cosmic cage match between God and Satan. And it's kind of like Rocky and Apollo Creed, and they're just trading blows, and it's going down to the, to the very end. Hopefully, just right in the nick of time at the very end, God will be able to pull one over on him. And you know, with that mentality, you know what's easy to think? It's easy to think maybe God needs my help a little bit. God's struggling you know, he's being knocked down. Maybe, maybe if I can just make the right decisions, if I can be righteous enough, if I can vote the right way, if I can find the, just the right way to share the gospel, then that'll tip the scales in this cosmic cage match. Men and women, it is nothing like that. The Bible says that God's enemies are just his footstool. Jesus said, all authority on heaven and earth is given to me. It is not shared. Listen, for us, the man of lawlessness, he will be intimidating, but that's only because he is imitating God. He is really just a guy in a costume. That's all he is. Jesus wins, and it's not even close. And so at the end of the day, you know enough to have hope. I want us to close with verse 10 because verse 10 has a bit of a warning. Verse 10, the end of it, it's not a part the, about the future. It's about today. He says, Satan's deceptions will be effective for those who refuse to love the truth and be saved. So apparently you'll have people who participate in the great rebellion who at some point in their life, they received the truth but refused it. They gave it no welcome they gave it no love. The offer of salvation was on the table for them at some point, and they rejected it. And y'all, I'm so glad Paul put this here, because I think for us, this is where abstract things about the future become concrete here and now realities. Because like Paul says, like 1 John said, even, even though we may not know who the man of lawlessness is, there is still a 
mystery of lawlessness around us, isn't there? We know enough to know that we have a choice to make. There will come a day in the future when restraint will be lifted. There will be full-blown, unrestrained evil. Many will be deceived. Many will go laughing and cheering into their own destruction. Many will fall in love with the father of lies. And, and we know this, we know enough to know this, many will be saved. Many will see the Savior they've been longing to see face to face, the one who gave his life so they could be in his presence. What Paul is telling us here, your reaction on that day is due at least in part to your acceptance of the truth on this day. We all know enough. We all see enough of a blurry picture to make a choice today. Because even today, we know there is evilness, there's evil and brokenness and rebellion in the world. We know there's a spirit of rebellion, a mystery of lawlessness, the reality of evil that lurks under the surface and just about everywhere we go and everything we do, we all feel it. And today, you have been presented with the truth of the gospel, that Jesus gave his life so you can have a relationship with him. And that same Jesus is returning to make all things right. And then on that day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You know enough to have hope if you welcome the truth today. And so I want to close just in saying this. Do you have hope for the future today? Have you welcomed the truth of the gospel into your heart today? If not, I would ask, what is stopping you? What is stopping you? Is it some past hurt? Is it some doubt? Is it uh, there's something in your life you're holding on to you don't want to give up? Whatever it is, listen, I would just tell you, all those things are normal. They're perfectly normal. But maybe today God wants you to move you, wants to move you past those things into something better, into the truth. So why don't you ask him today if it's true, if it's true that Jesus created you and that he loves you and that he made atonement for your sins and that he is coming again. And on that day, if you believe in him, it will be a great day. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. If you have questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.